and welcome to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. I'm Bart Gregory, along with Charlie Winfield. Show number 20. Well, when we started the show, we said we got, we're going to do a 20-show spring. That would get us through the College World Series or to the College World Series, and we're at that point. And I tell you what, we've been thoroughly enjoyed it. We appreciate you being along for the ride. And, Charlie, each and every week, we get the comments, we get tweets, we get emails. It's amazing how the bases continue to grow, and it's kind of bittersweet today as far as finishing up baseball season. When we started, we were talking about baseball games, but then we turned into more of doing some interviews, and that's one of the things I wanted to talk about today is just looking back at the roster of people we've been able to talk to who have an affiliation with Mississippi State or college baseball and it has been a wild, fun ride. And it's been very different than we anticipated when we started this show. We thought we were going to have a weekly show where we talked about the games that have been played, the games that were going to be coming up, and maybe spend a little bit of time each week talking to a former Bulldog or talking to somebody in the game. But the world changed that last night we were together down in Biloxi for the Texas Tech ball games. We did our show from there really having no idea. We were just starting to get word that things were happening, that the NBA was shutting down. It was that ride home the next day. I wasn't sure where this show would go, but I think it's actually been more fun, more rewarding than I could have possibly imagined just from the amount of time we have spent talking to a lot of Bulldog greats. That was a week we talked to Bo McGinnis. That was the fourth interview we had done. We talked to Eric DeBose, Jay Powell, Mitch Moreland, and then Bo McGinnis. And then the NBA canceled the season that night during that Texas Tech game. First and foremost, before we get to these stories, let's talk about the first round of the Major League Baseball draft. And we knew going in you had a chance to lose. You felt like you were going to lose Austin Hendrick, that uh, power-hitting left-handed hitter from the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area. He went number 12. Justin Foscue. Moving up to number 14 to the Rangers, I had seen some mocks that had him around 19 or 20. Did that surprise you at all? And, Charlie, i tell you this, too. If you go and you put a lot of stock in mock drafts in baseball, you're going to lose a lot because a lot of those guys who throw out the mock drafts really have no clue. But Foscue at 14 was a really good pick for the Rangers. I thought it was a great pick. But, you know, the baseball draft is so much different than, say, football. At football, as much as people will say you draft for talent, not for need, the bottom line is when you are making a draft pick in the NFL, they're going to help you next year or they are not. You're not drafting for down the road. In baseball, you're trying to project. You're trying to draft for what you might need in a couple of years. And really, I think in baseball, you throw out what you would consider your needs. If you need a third baseman, you don't draft a third baseman because they are never going to get there by the time that you need them. You have to get the best player available. And I think in a year where high school players just haven't been seen enough, it makes it really dangerous to take a pick on a high school guy. And what does Foscue have? He's dependable. He's solid. My favorite statistic of the past two years, past year and a half, is that not one time did Justin Foscue go back-to-back games hitless? Think about how easy it is to go play a weekend in the SEC and to come home 0 for 8, 0 for 9, 0 for 10. He didn't do it. He never went back-to-back games without hit. And then you look at his power numbers. He got them in SEC play as well. This is a guy who had a very low swing and miss rate. 
I think you can argue that he isn't the most athletic, but what he is is he's a guy who puts the bat on the ball, hits it with some power, and I think he projects to be a solid, dependable guy. And will hit with more power as he gets older. Jordan Westberg, the first pick of the supplemental round, the 30th pick overall to the Orioles. Do you count him as a first-round pick? I do. If Alabama's going to count now 15 national championships, we're going to count Westberg as a first-round pick. Yeah, oh, absolutely. I count him. And he's a little bit different, right, than Foscu. Foscu, we talk about the guy you kind of know what you're getting. Westberg is a guy who – the statistics guys, the computer guys, love Westberg because the exit velocity just leaps off the page at you. This is a guy who needs some development, needs some refining, but, boy, the tools are there. And now the question marks begin. Where does JT begin? What does he do? Even if he's drafted, and he's going to be drafted very quickly, Blaze Jordan, the signee, what's he going to do? What is their slot value going to be? What are they asking for? Now, the thing about Foscu and Westberg, those guys have slot over $4 million. They're gone. Congratulations. We appreciate your time. I wish we had gotten to see you play this year. How about how special would that middle infield have been as a season had gone on? Oh, it would have been outstanding. And two guys who were kind of starting to heat up a little bit, much like the whole team. So the Major League Baseball draft – from a signee standpoint, you may have one, maybe two more that you're really worried about. But at the end of the day, Mississippi State, like an LSU, like an Arkansas, like a lot of other SEC teams, is going to come out of this very, very strong simply because you only have the limited five rounds this year. Yeah, it absolutely helps. You're not going to lose some of your core players coming back because of the fact that the draft has been shortened. On this show, we decided to put the bow on this one, put the wraps on our 20 shows for out of left field, and we decided to go with a guy who had seen most of these things happen, and that was Jim Ellis, the voice of the Bulldogs, the voice of the Diamond Dogs, has been at Mississippi State, just did his 42nd year in start. Well, and Charlie, I couldn't think of anybody better than to come with one, some of these stories that we learned and say, hey, Jim, what do you remember about these stories? It's been interesting as we've gone through the year, we find ourselves talking to each other. Hey, look, we had somebody from the early 80s. We need to talk about the 90s or we need to talk about the 2000s. And you find yourself trying to get guests who can speak not only to some interesting stories, but to hit a spot, to hit a, a spot in the order, in the chronology of Mississippi State baseball. Now we got a guy who can kind of come in and, and weave it all together. I'm really excited to talk with Jim Ellis. So when we come back, we'll talk to the voice of the Diamond Dogs, Jim Ellis, about his time in his 42 years at Mississippi State. Once again, we'd like to thank our great sponsors as Farm Bureau, bringing you out of left field, but back with more on out of left field, presented by Farm Bureau right after this. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. It's time now for our guest line segment, brought to you each week by our friends at Heartland Catfish. Heartland, producing the finest farm-raised catfish in America. They're a prime example of bringing quality food from the farm to the table. Each week, we feature great restaurants serving Heartland Catfish, and this week, we talk about a place that you simply can't go wrong with anything, especially the catfish. It's the Blue Plate Restaurant in Northport and Dothan. And you can get that amazing catfish either fried, grilled, or blackened. Three great locations for the Blue Plate, one in Northport, two in Dothan. And, man, it's just something about that cornbread batter they fried in. 
That's the Blue Plate serving the finest farm-raised catfish from our good friends at Heartland Catfish. Well, let's go to the Heartland guest line where we have the voice of the Diamond Dogs, Jim Ellis. Well, Jim, we appreciate you joining us. I know it was a short season, but number 42 for you in the booth broadcasting Bulldog baseball. And the first team you got to broadcast with that 1979 team. We talked to Buck Showalter a couple of weeks ago, and he said that Mike Kelly was essentially Jake Mangum before there was a Jake Mangum. Did you see any similarities in Mike Kelly and Jake Mangum? Maybe a little bit. You know, Mike was uh, Mike Kelly was a really good center fielder who could run down balls. I think Jake had a little more, probably had a little more power than than Kelly did. Uh, I don't know whether I don't know who would have won a foot race, but they they both Kelly had a had a unique style where uh, left handed batter box he. Uh, he gets out of the box so quick, and he was great. He's as good as I've ever seen at slapping the ball to the left side of the infield and taking off. And it, if he, if he 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 had a lot of big choppers in that direction. He he was very seldom thrown out, but but he also could turn on a ball and, and uh, hit it hard from time to time. But he was a really complete ball player, a guy who could run, a guy who uh, probably not probably didn't have the the Jake Mangum's arm, probably a little better maybe. Uh, but a really a good outfielder and a really great guy to have at the top of the order. So, so there are some similarities between those two. Jim, when we talk about great seasons at the plate, and you start thinking about the 80s, obviously, Palmero and Clark, and Bruce Castoria got so much attention, his 29 home run year in 1981. But you go back and you look at the stats, and the guy who had a monster year, that would seem to be in anybody's list of great seasons, but for the fact that Castoria had those 29 home runs, was Mark Gillespie. Had 20 home runs, he hit 410. What are your memories of Mark Gillespie as a player? You know, he was a, he was a switch-hitting outfielder. He was a right fielder, uh, was, was not a great defender, which was probably is, uh, you know, would be the one thing, the one knock against Mark Gillespie, but a pure hitter and a clutch hitter. And, and a really, really good teammate, uh, really quiet guy that went about his business in a, in a, in a really uh, solid, professional-type manner. But he was, a, he was a very, very good baseball player. Uh, and and that was, the middle of that order was awfully good with uh, both uh, Castoria and Gillespie in there uh, in, the, in the middle of that order. But uh, Castoria did have a tremendous uh, 81 season. Uh, his, our trip out west, it was, he was just unconscious. He, he uh, had an unbelievable, uh, I think we played seven games out there in Arizona and, and of course, went to Las Vegas eventually. But, but, uh, but yeah, Mark Gillespie was a really good, solid player, had a long minor league career, never really made the big leagues, but he was a triple-A player for several years. I think he was a player of the year maybe in the, uh, in the old Texas League one year in double-A ball, but he, he, was, uh, he was a really good baseball player. And uh, I hated the fact he didn't make the big leagues. I always thought he would get there, and he just he just never quite got there. But he was uh, certainly one of the greats of that uh, era for Mississippi State. I couldn't let a conversation about 1981 pass, though, without asking you about another guy. I remember Steve D'Urcale as a shortstop, but there's some guys at Wichita State who are going to remember Steve D'Urcale for something else. What are your memories of D'Urcale when he took the mound? <laughs> he, was, he was a strike thrower. Uh, except for one time, and that was when we were playing uh, Livingston University, you know, it became uh, University of West Alabama. 
and our Livingston State. They had a, a strike zone about the size of a pea, and nobody could throw strikes that day. But uh, he was very solid, a strike thrower. Had a We called it a, a fork ball back then. I think it's sort of the old split. Uh, but he could really throw that pitch, and and the bottom dropped out of it. He was, uh, you know, he had a decent fastball. Uh, but he, I, it's, it's interesting. I talked with Gene Stevenson, who was the coach at Wichita State back during the College World Series, uh, the last time we were there uh, in, in nineteen, and uh, he was talking about that shortstop that beat us uh, in Clemson, South Carolina, at the regionals that year. But that was a great ball club. That Clemson ball club. I mean, excuse me. That uh, Wichita State ball club. They had Phil Stevenson on that ball club. They had Joe Carter, who had a tremendous major league career. Uh, they had uh, Jim Thomas, who who holds. Uh, he was one of the hit record guys in the top five, I think, in uh, career hits. But they had some tremendous talent on that ball club, and, and Diercole just shut them down uh, and and beat them in the and what was turned out to be a huge ball game. Then we came back. We had we had won against East Tennessee State, came back and beat East Tennessee State. Again, Clemson was eliminated from the tournament and, of course, went to the College World Series in 81. But, yeah, Steve D'Ercole, uh was, was a great fourth pitcher. That was a great rotation because not only did they have Steve Susie and Don Monday, they also had Alan Morlock, who was a very serviceable pitcher. He, he pitched for a long time in the minor leagues in a couple of two or three years in triple-A ball. And then D'Ercole was the fourth. That was a team that had really four pretty good starters, and they could have, have almost been interchangeables on a lot of weekends. Talking with Jim Ellis, the voice of the Diamond Dogs, and then you segue into 1983, 84, and 85. We talked a couple of weeks ago with Trent and and they were talking about that, that late-season surge in 1983, going to Austin and playing in that six-team regional in 83, and then the heartbreak of 1984. So much talk is always about that 1985 team, but going into that season, how much pressure was on that team? Because you had all those talented guys, and they had never tasted Omaha. They didn't know there were going to be great pros right then, though. I mean, looking back, it's a little bit easier than than <laughs> looking uh, forward. Uh, they had had a very they they had had a great run in '83. It was a it was it was a great uh, run at the end. Certainly, uh, Will Clark in '83 when he got in the lineup, he certainly gave a boost to that ball club. Uh, but but '83, and of course, that was Brantley's sophomore year, and he began to pitch well in the second half of that season. Uh, but uh, but it was it was a team that finished strong, and, and that was you know that was exciting to go out to Austin, Texas, and University of Texas really had a big baseball name at that time, and to win you know beat Texas, beat beat uh, Calvin Chiraldi, who was a of course a big league pitcher for a long time, but he was we beat Chiraldi and got to the championship ball game, uh, and and lost to a left-hander called LeBay on a Sunday afternoon, and uh, one of the one of my favorite uh, stories of all time was the press conference. It wasn't really a press conference, just the media standing around after the ball game. A number of writers and myself and Coach Polk is there. And uh, we had a, a sports writer who, uh, whose name will remain anonymous right now who uh, asked Coach Polk. And we'd just gotten shut out, I think, by LaFay. I remember, I think it was six to nothing ball game. And uh, he was a. And, and we were going to have to face Roger Clemens that night in the second game on that Sunday. And the writer asked Coach Polk, he said, do you think the reason 
that you uh, that you lost this ball game. You were overconfident." And he looked at him and he said, "That is the stupidest question I have ever heard." And turned around <laughs> and walked off. <laughs> and I just I just tagged along. And, uh, but anyway, but that's uh, that's one of my favorite Coach Polk stories. <laughs> you think back to that era, and I think back to, I think it was 1984. I remember I was listening on the radio. We're not playing very well. We're down in New Orleans. It's about the seventh inning, and I hear on the broadcast, the team is leaving the field. If I remember right, Ron Polk got maybe ejected and, and pulled the team off the field. Remind us what happened in that game down in New Orleans. Well, number one, uh, we, we were getting beaten, beaten in that ball game. Uh, which probably wasn't making Ron, uh, Ron too happy. Number two, it was uh, it was beer night. They they had uh, I've forgotten they had a beer special on uh, that night. So we're getting beat, and there's a call at second base that Ron goes out to argue. Well, what had happened? One of the umpires got sick during the ball game, so I don't know. I'm, I I forget which inning we're in. Probably the sixth inning or seventh, middle of the ball game. But we still had two or three innings to play. And uh, and Ron goes out to argue, well, the reason that this guy is out there is the guy got sick, the base umpire got sick and had to leave, and they pulled a guy who was an umpire out of the stand. Uh, and so he's out there calling second base, and Ron gets, as you know, he, he likes to get nose-to-nose and eyeball-to-eyeball, and as he's doing that, he realizes this guy's been drinking. And uh, and he said he said I'm not gonna I'm not gonna play this game with an umpire that's been drinking like calling <laughs> second base and uh, he just pulls the team off the field and I'm sitting up there and I'm, I'm they've had this big discussion and then all of a sudden we're picking up our bats and balls and we're leaving the stadium and he did send a manager up to me and say uh, we're, we're not we're not playing we're going we'll play we're not playing uh, the rest of this ball game we'll come back and play tomorrow so. I think that was the message I got, and, and that's what they did. They uh, they just uh, left the ball game, a win to the UNO. We went back to the hotel, came back out and won the next day. Uh, but that was a strange uh, feeling when you watch a ball club leave, and you don't know really, you don't have any idea exactly what's going on there. And you're probably broadcasting on top of the third base dugout. You know, 1987, we built a new stadium, but it was a Taj Mahal compared to what was around the country. You know, what were those times like in the in the early 1980s, 79 through the early 80s, of trying to get a broadcast on the air, not just at Duty Noble behind the chicken wire, but around the country? Yeah, and that was the day. That, that's back in the days where we used the sure mixers, and you had uh... – you didn't really hook up. You didn't talk to the guy back at the uh, station until you got on the air. In fact, you, uh, you you didn't know whether you were on the air or not because you were just sending the signal one way. It, it was interesting. It really was. Uh, it's boy, boy, the radio broadcast and, and all of media has come so far from the time that back in those days. But it was it was a uh, trial and error process. Sometimes usually we would have a backup phone number there in the press box hopefully or somebody uh you know somewhere close sometimes it was at the at the building across the street but we had a backup phone uh to so that we could be be called and and possibly get a message uh to us if we weren't on the air and and, and that did happen a couple of times but but yeah it was different uh it was a different era and certainly uh the quality of the broadcast was was limited uh, just by the fact that you didn't have a lot of bandwidth in the in those lines back then, it was a 
it's a different sounding broadcast if you go back and listen to old tapes back in that era. Of course, it's not as bad as the 40s and 50s, but it still wasn't a great quality sound back then. And, and, the, and, the, and the press boxes were non-existent in a lot of places. I mean, there was, when I started broadcasting, there was no press box in, in for, uh, at, at uh, Auburn. There was no press box at, uh, at Ole Miss. There was no press box at Vanderbilt. I mean, as far as, as, as radio, radio just, like you say, sitting on Vanderbilt, we sat on top of the third base dugout. At uh, Ole Miss, we stepped, sat on the top row of the, of the bleachers uh, the, uh, behind home plate. Uh, you did have a little desk in front of you, a built-in desk in front of you. Uh, same thing at Auburn. Uh, you just sat on that top row at Auburn to, to broadcast a ball game. I mean, it, and of course, LSU, uh, we just sat up there amongst all the other folks at Alex Box Stadium. Uh, they did have some tables up at the top, but we broadcast there at LSU until they built a new stadium, basically. Yeah, until recently. So yeah. uh, along those lines of trying to you know get on the air, and it's it's early, and it's a little bit different at Mississippi State. We're having the big crowds, and you know you, there's a lot of excitement. Then all of a sudden, you had a lot of different radio stations maybe wanting to put Mississippi State baseball on the air. How was it, and what was the process of building the radio network, and it really was the first baseball radio network? Well, of course, when Ron Polk took a team to the College World Series in 1979, uh, we, uh, at the end of the season, offered to feed the broadcast to any station that would like in Mississippi. And there were a number of stations that wanted to carry it. In fact, we ended up with 20, I think, 20-something stations that carried Mississippi State baseball in 1979 when we played in the College World Series. Uh, and so we went from that to uh, to making to seeing how many of those stations would carry games the next year. And I think we ended up with about 10, 10 or I, – I don't remember the exact number, but it was, a, it was a good handful of stations, probably around 10 or 11 stations uh, that first year that we offered. I think we offered – at that time, I think we were playing a 30 – 30-game schedule or maybe a 24-game schedule in the league. I can't remember. It, uh, I think we had gone maybe to a 30-game schedule. At one time, it was tw- I think it was 24 the first year that I broadcast. Uh, but, but nonetheless, uh, we would offer we, – we offered 30 games, basically, all of the SEC games and maybe a couple of other uh, games also, uh, like the, um, the Mayor's Trophy that became the Governor's Cup uh, series uh, started in 80. So we offered that game and – and, and maybe three or four others. But we, I think we had a 30-game schedule we offered. And we had that many stations sign up. And then, of course, in 81, we go back to the College World Series, and we get another uh, group of, of some 20-something stations that wanted to carry the postseason. And so that's really what grew it. We started, and then we, of course, worked those stations each year. I mean, it was a, it was a, it was a selling job. They wanted – so many of the stations wanted – uh, the postseason, but really didn't want to jump in. But as Mississippi State got better, and we really built the network, we stabilized it 83, 84, 85, because those teams, 83, 84, 85, of course, got to a, a two regional finals and then to the College World Series. Uh, and that was after that, we didn't have any problems. We had about, at one time, I think we had 31 stations on the network. Uh, but what happened is some of those stations consolidate. Some uh, a station gets more power and can cover two markets. And and that that we were back in the to the mid twenties, and that's where the the radio network stayed most of the time in the mid twenties. After that, but it was a pretty stable network after eighty five. After we'd gone. 
through those three years. And, of course, it helped. We had an off year in 86, but in 87, 80, 87 through 90, we have you know good success each year. And uh, success is certainly the reason that we were able to build a network. And the fact that Ron Polk really embraced the, the radio network, felt like it helped him recruit him. Felt like it helped him with uh, with with fans becoming attached to the team, and so he really promoted it also. And I I think that was a big help as we built that network over that first ten years or so. And we're talking with Jim Ellis, the voice of the Diamond Dogs. We'll talk further on the other side of the break. You're listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau. We're looking back at Bulldog history in this segment, brought to you by our good friends at Country Pleasing Sausage. You know the great thing about this time of year, it's pretty much grill time for me and my family, at least once or twice a week. It's like a bad habit, or a good habit, I should say. Every time I fire up the old grill, I absolutely have to put some Country Pleasing on there. It's like a pitching rotation. I rotate the original, the jalapeno cheddar, the green onion, the the pineapple and pork. My kids are always standing there right by the grill when I take it off the grill, just like little vultures. And you can get it now in just about any grocery store in the state of Mississippi. And if you can't find it at your local grocer, you can order it online at countrypleasing.com, and they'll pack it and ship it to you. Country Pleasing Sausage, your sausage pitching rotation for the rest of the summer. In your job as a broadcaster, you obviously have uh, plenty of opportunities to interact with the fans. You travel with the team. You see that side of the things and probably have as complete a perspective as anybody about the health of the program, the health of games, and the league. I'm curious. One of the things that we talk about sometimes is, you know, the old days we would play the doubleheaders on Saturday, single game on Sunday. You had, the for a while, two seven-inning games, and then it seemed like they had a nine and a seven and ultimately go Friday, Saturday, Sunday, one game a night. A lot of fans will say, boy, I miss those doubleheaders. From your perspective, were the doubleheaders a good thing, or do you prefer the setup we have now? Oh, I I much prefer the setup we have now. But I do think that when you were – I can only speak from Mississippi State standpoint because I think from the Mississippi State standpoint, the doubleheaders really – Help the program grow because people made it an event uh, to come and and spend the day at the ballpark. And I think that the uh, the, the outfield area grew tremendously during that time, and and people uh, came early and stayed late, and it became an event. It was it baseball was the centerpiece, but the event became an event. And of course, so much of athletics is. The event today. I mean, the game is very, very important, but people want to be entertained, and I think it became an entertainment time for for fans. And we had, uh, I think, the Mississippi State fans have always become attached to players, and we've we've had favorite players for all these different eras. And the players, uh, Ron Pope did a good job of of having you know the foster parent program and some of the things that uh, we had that gave the players a chance to interact with the fans and people had their favorite fan and they would they love to, to give them uh, you know a hamburger after the ball game and have conversations with it but but that I think is is it was great for Mississippi State now around the league I mean we would go to some places and, and a doubleheader would draw 500 fans and back in the early days 
and that's not a whole lot of fun. But uh, but as we, I think that that now I think it was time when we went to the to the uh, to the three nine inning ball games. It, it was time to do it. And uh, to be honest with you, from a broadcast standpoint, uh, doubleheaders are tough, particularly when you were solo as I was for so many years, and you've got uh, you know one of the games last three hours and the next one lasts four and you don't get off the air but maybe 10 minutes between games it's it's a long day and you're still right now the, the game two lineup in, the, in your card probably in the second inning <laughs> that's right exactly <laughs> jim you talk about ron polk and the things that he did to build the program we heard a story that i had never heard before when we visited with barry winford not too long ago and barry told us that after the trip to kentucky in 1987, before Mississippi State came back for that big weekend against Alabama, that they had played bad, and Ron Polk, as they were getting off the bus, said, if I see you on the field this week, you're off the team. Basically didn't let them practice all week, and they have that kind of big weekend. We had never heard that story, but it just kind of talked to me a little bit about the idea of the way Ron Polk kind of was able to push buttons with his guys when he needed to. As you look back at the Ron Polk years, and particularly in through the, the 80s and 90s, what was it that made him so successful as a coach? Well, one thing was his confidence. He was always confident with the players. You know, he never saw a pitcher that, that, that you couldn't hit, and he, uh, he never saw a hitter you couldn't get out. And he was, he was just had a, had a he, was, he was organized. He was confident. Players knew exactly what to expect from him, I think. And, and and he you know he he would come out he would pay, post the the practice schedule every, you know he he figured that out a week in advance uh, everybody knew what the what 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 they were going to be doing uh, he very structured in the way that he uh, ran practice very structured in the way he approached the game uh, but at the same time he just let players play he believed that you put them in position you let them relax and play he was always one he always believed in getting a lineup and staying with it. And you had to play your way out of the lineup. I think he got. I think he made players comfortable. I think he gave them confidence. And he was a good tactician. Uh, and he always he always had a good. I, I think the other thing that Ron did a really good job of. He always had good people around him. He had he's had some great coaches around him. Many of them have gone on to be successful head coaches in other places. But Ron Polk always was able to attract uh, good quality coaches. Uh, and so with. You know, with his his structure, uh, with his confidence, and with his knowledge of baseball, he's a very very knowledgeable baseball person. And with all of that, uh, you know, he just had success. And the, and the thing I haven't talked about is recruiting. Ron Polk was a good recruiter. He he uh, had a, did an excellent job. And then as as he got deeper into the situation and and, and became older, uh, he he relied more on uh, his assistant coaches for recruiting. And maybe didn't get out like he did at one time, but he still was a very good recruiter. And he could he could sit down with a young man, and he could uh, sit down with a family, and he could uh, lay things out and make them feel confident that he was going to take care of that young man when he got to uh, Mississippi State University. So uh, you put all those things together, and the fact that he at his time and he was a promoter at his time, he did things a little different. He did things with a flair. He attracted people to the program, and so when you can recruit, when you get, when you can take the players and make them make them better after they get here, and when you can make that fun for the fans, you can sort of get the whole package together. And he, and of course, and then he was a tireless worker. 
Uh, Ron Polk was a tireless worker and still is. And it takes that kind of work ethic to put together the kind of success that he's had. We're talking with Jim Ellis, the voice of the Diamond Dogs. And, Jim, along those lines with assistant coaches, we've talked to several of these guys. Uh, we talked to Steve Smith. We've talked to Pat McMahon. We've talked to Jim Case, Butch, and Lane. You know, so many of these guys who have had a big impact on the program. The one guy we haven't talked about is Mark Johnson. And I know he was here 79-82. And a lot of guys have referred to Mark Johnson and said how important he was to the program. What kind of coach and what kind of style did Mark Johnson have? Mark was, uh, number one, he's one of, the, one of the nicer people you'll ever meet. A genuine person. He, uh, he was, uh, I, think, I think Mark would, I, I, I don't know how to characterize him as a coach. He was one that the players liked. Uh, because he was he was a guy who 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 really who who really cared about them, and you, sometimes you, you know all coaches quote care about their players, but some let the players understand that players understand how much he cares about them, and and certainly Mark was one of those people, good solid Christian guy who who uh, had great values, uh, but he was a lot of fun. You didn't, you wouldn't realize it when you first talked to him, and you would find out Mark Mark Johnson loved to to uh, pull a prank or or tell a joke or keep uh, people uh, li- listening to a story. Uh, but he was an easy guy to be around, a really good baseball guy, and and he and Ron got along so good, uh, and so that that was a, that was a key also that he and Ron Polk. Uh, he was, you know, his his first real uh, assistant coach at Mississippi State from a standpoint of. Of being a full-time guy that he put a lot of responsibility on, uh, but Mark Johnson, of course, uh, I've been able to maintain a friend, friendship with Mark over the years. He's he's just like today he was back then. He's he's a, just a, a genuine person who is always uh, fun to be around. Uh, had a really great experience with Mark. He came uh, after he retired from Texas A&M. He came one year and he. Uh, he actually sat in for a week with me and, and and did color on the broadcast, and we had a had a really good time. I think he broadcast helped me broadcast three games that week, but it was good to to uh, renew. And of course, he's doing some broadcasting now at Texas A and M. Has been with some of the SEC network stuff, but uh, but a, but a great guy and a, and a really good coach, and uh, did a tremendous job at Texas A and M when he was out there. Jim, before we let you go, I've got to ask you a question I've asked a lot of the people that we've talked to in and around baseball this year, and that is where you see the health of college baseball today. You've obviously got as much perspective on the growth of the sport, but with all the things going on in Major League Baseball, the contractions of the minor league systems, where do you see the future of college baseball? Well, I think it's good. I think the future of college baseball is really good. I think uh, the one thing that concerns you right now is uh, what's going to happen with athletic departments as they come out of the pandemic and decide uh, wh- whether or not they're going to continue uh, maybe a, a program or if they're going to cut it. I think the one thing they've got to do is to scholarship baseball a little better than they do uh, and, and, and give an opportunity uh, to, to spread out recruiting somewhat. Recruiting in, in baseball has become it's what baseball has become is is strictly a uh, a situation where where almost every kid that plays baseball comes out of a, a family that's able to support them and and allow them to be able to play at a high level of summer ball and they may be playing it's, it takes a lot of money I guess what I'm saying it takes a lot of money for a lot of a lot of uh, players to get noticed 
to play at the level in the in, at the level that they do to become a part of a, a major college program somewhere. Uh, it's interesting. I had an interview with Jack Kruger, former Bulldog, who's got a, a website now that uh, he's trying to help people. He's saying that, uh, and, and, and sort of the emphasis is the fact that, uh, that, you, that you don't have to spend all that money, that you can get noticed uh, in other ways. And he's, he's got some, some suggestions and so forth. But uh, that's, that's an interesting thing within itself. I, I see baseball as getting good players because I think if the, if the minor leagues do con, continue to contract some, that's going to uh, give you a, a, a underneath layer of players. The great players are either going to go pro or they're going to come to college. Um, the ones who can go pro, I think, will go pro. The, the ones who can get a college education and, 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 and savor that will, will come to college. But I, the, the growth of baseball, college baseball, has been a tremendous. The facilities are so much better. The overall coaching is, is better than it's ever been. The kids who come in are are, are better athletes now. Uh, I won't say that they're, they, but they, they they throw harder. They they uh, they ha- are more skilled because they played in better competition in high school, and so it's just uh, it's a situation that uh, that that I think you're going to get good athletes. I think people realize that uh, with the College World Series, I think the College World Series has done a great job. Of promoting college baseball and, and making it a big deal, and I think there are a lot of a lot of schools that that pride themselves in that. But at the same time, uh, not many college baseball programs making any money. Uh, it's, it's it's a drain on athletic departments in a lot of situations, and so that is is something that hampers it a little bit right now. I don't know what you do. I've seen the different proposals. You know, play it in the summer, uh, get uh, a chance maybe to attract people uh, that would be doing, uh, you know, some other things uh, at, at the time of the year. I know the, uh, the proposals are out there. I'm not sure what the, the answer to all of that is. I just know in the Southeastern Conference, if you're a good baseball team, I mean, at almost any school in the SEC, if they're playing well, they draw good crowds. Uh, and certainly uh, at Mississippi State, at Ole Miss, you know, at Arkansas, at Texas A&M, and LSU and and a lot of other places too, but I mean I just think if if those teams are playing well, you get some big crowds and you got a lot of interest and uh, you got great talent. And and when you look, it just you know we're going to have a draft this week and it's going to be interesting to see. I, I was look, I think I saw that uh, fourteen of the first thirty something picks in the draft are expected to be SEC players. I don't know whether that's going to happen or not, but that's the kind of thing that happens to give you an idea how good the talent is. Uh, particularly in the in the Southeastern Conference. Jim, we appreciate you talking with us. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's always good to talk to you guys. I'm glad, you, uh, glad you're doing this. I think it's great to, to get some messages out uh, to folks uh, on a lot of different things, and you've had some great guests, and I uh, appreciate you letting me talk with you. Well, thanks, Jim. Appreciate you as always. And when we come back, Charlie now put the wraps on the final segment here on Out of Left Field. Presented by Farm Bureau. And welcome back to Out of Left Field. Presented by Farm Bureau. Bart Gregory, Charlie Winfield. Final segment. It was great to talk to Jim. He had some great stories. I was talking about one time, I think, uh, down in New Orleans. Crazy how everything happens at 
New Orleans. You pull a team off the field. He almost got struck by lightning down there one time in a thunderstorm. But, yeah, Jim just provides just backstory after backstory of everything that's gone on in the last 42 years. Oh, he does. And, boy, there's all sorts of stories about New Orleans. Maybe we'll talk about some of those on our show next year. Taking a look back at the 20 shows that we've done, the previous 19, and the interviews that we've been able to do. You talk about an Eric DeBose. He was the first guy that we talked to about pitching as a freshman. Jay Powell coming in. He pitched as a freshman. He was a first-round draft pick. And, you know, Mitch Moreland, Bo McGinnis. Charlie, some of these things that we look back, I learned a lot about Mississippi State baseball that I didn't know. And I learned really one of the first things when we talked to Bo McGinnis about just how close Ron Polk came to being the manager of the Atlanta Braves in the early 1970s. And that's how Bo first found out about Ron Polk. I had no idea. Never heard that story. The next week, we talked to Buck Showalter about uh, coming to Mississippi State. He started talking about, and you heard a moment ago, we talked to Jim about Mike Kelly and, and Jake Mangum. He brought Russ Aldrich into play. You start talking about a Howie McCann, those teams of the late 1970s. But it's amazing when you start talking about Buck Showalter, Mitch Moreland, and these guys who have been around a major league locker room, their affinity toward Mississippi State, even when they got to the pros, Buck Showalter is still a big Bulldog fan. And that's what's interesting is to talk to Buck Showalter and how much he keeps up with Mississippi State athletics now and keeps up with his teammates. A lot of times you think about guys who are in the pros and they view college as something they went through. Not these guys. And that's a theme all the way through with everybody we talked to. Not only did their days here matter, the connection that they still have matters to them as well. The guy that next week, Ben McDonald, of course, an All-American at LSU, is a first-round draft pick by the Orioles and pitched in big leagues for a while. And, of course, Ben with the SEC Network now. But Ben talked about just how close he came to coming to Mississippi State recruited hard by Ron Polk, elected to go to LSU. That was back when Skip Berkman was getting everything rolling down in Baton Rouge. And to be honest with you, he took a leap of faith to go to LSU because at that time, Mississippi State was the big dog in the SEC. Well, if only he hadn't grown up 30 miles from Baton Rouge, how might things be different? Barry Winford had some really good stories. Oh, man. Late 1980s, he was kind of the field general as the catcher. You know, the stories that I love from Barry Winford, I had never heard that in 1987, Mississippi State had to sweep Alabama to even get into the SEC tournament, which they actually won. But Ron Polk was mad at the team about how they played at Kentucky. And the week of the biggest series of the year kicks the whole team off the field and tells them if they come out there, they're off the team. They don't practice. They don't (laughs) practice, and they go play. I thought that was a really cool story. And then one of my favorites, he talked about where uh, Frank Thomas is sitting there watching Pete Young warm up and take his warm-up pitches, and they gotten a little bit too close to the plate. And Barry Winford, before the play had even begun, had to go out to the mound during warm-ups to tell Pete Young, you can't throw it, Frank Thomas. <laughs> they still be fighting. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And then the following week, we decided to dip into – assistant coaches, former assistant coaches, but a guy that spent four years as the head coach at Mississippi State, Pat McMahon. And the thing about Pat McMahon, he spent 1998 to 2001 as the head coach, left, went to Florida, really had not been back a whole lot. But he was honored earlier this year with the pitching lab. But one of the things that I learned 
throughout the rest of the show is just the affinity that everyone had toward Pat McMahon. It's interesting. How many times do we ask the question, what changed for you? What let you improve from your freshman year to your sophomore year, sophomore to junior, and time after time, Pat McMahon and their work with Pat McMahon was the story. Jeff Brantley talked about it last week, about the repetition. Jeff Brantley, you talk about Gene Morgan, and he attributed the success of 1985 with that pitching staff of Morgan and Brantley to Pat McMahon. Jeffrey Ray, who was the all-time hits leader at Mississippi State until a couple of years ago, Farm Bureau agent from Nettleton, great player, and a guy that you know that grew up really wasn't a huge Mississippi State fan when he was in high school, but he comes to Mississippi State and was just a prototypical leadoff guy and then moved to the outfield as well. It was always good to talk to Jeffrey. And then we did one of the coolest things that I've ever <laughs> done in broadcasting. We spent basically an entire show with Butch Thompson and Lane Burroughs just sitting around and talking baseball. How incredible was that? Just visiting with those guys and hearing too many new stories to even recount. And then later we talked to Steve Smith. And the thing that really – Jumped out at me. Steve Smith was an assistant coach here in the early 90s, had the number one ranked recruiting class in the country in 94, and then went and enjoyed a great career at Baylor. But you hear Steve Smith, Butch Thompson, Lane Burroughs, and they all said the same thing. It was kind of funny about how they all grew up in the state of Mississippi. They all followed this program. They all said, hey, we weren't good enough to play, but it was just a dream for them to come back and be a part of the program as an assistant coach. Steve Smith telling the story about going up to Hattiesburg to watch Jack Lazorka pitch. Janet Marie Smith joined us the following week, the famed architect working with the L.A. Dodgers right now. She was the architect for Camden Yards. It really ushered in a new ballpark in the Major League Baseball. And the thing when you look back, Janet Marie Smith talking about her ideas really started with urban development. And it talks, too, about how much baseball in so many places is woven into the fabric of the community. It's more than just a game. It's part of the city, and that's how she saw her stadiums. Adam Frazier, Wes Ray, they joined us. They talked about just how close that 2013 team was. You had uh, Tank and Mooney joined us, a couple of managers. They talked about all kind of behind-the-scenes stuff about you know doing the laundry in New Orleans and Late night, down in the Big Easy. We talk about Steve Smith, Carlton Lower, who's now living in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. We need to parlay that into a hunting trip. Well, and I saw Carlton Lower actually featured on a Mississippi State video yesterday. Perhaps we were trailblazers in getting uh, Carlton Lower back with uh, MSU baseball. Jim Case was a pitching coach under Pat McMahon in 98 to 2001. They just named the baseball stadium for him at Jacksonville State, longtime head coach at Jacksonville State. He was really big in the mid-'80s as a GA and then came back as a pitching coach, one of the nicest guys in the game of baseball. But Jim Case had a story that I never knew. The only reason he was at Mississippi State in the mid-1980s is because Buck Showalter was going to come back and be a GA under Ron Polk and decided to stay in Major League Baseball. Yeah, never heard that. Chris Young, the bullpen coach for the Cubs, Chris seemed like he really enjoyed being here. It was good to talk to Chris. There's a guy who's at the greatest Major League Baseball franchise. I know the Yankees have won a lot of World Series, but they still have nothing on Wrigley Field and the Cubs. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Del Unser, 
That was yeah. a good interview with oh, Dale. That was Lonson. great. Listening to a guy who's played for Ted Williams, who played with Pete Rose and Mike Schmidt, and who had some of the biggest hits in the nineteen eighty World Series. Philly doesn't win that title without Dell Unser, fifteen year pro from Mississippi State. And he talked about getting tips from Rusty Staub and Ted Williams. It was just absolutely amazing. Trent and Torsha talking about those eighty three to eighty six teams that kind of what made them go by stealing some lava rocks out in Hawaii. And then last week we talked to Jonathan Holder of the 27-time World Series champions, the most decorated team in the history of professional sports, the New York Yankees. Holder and then Jeff Brantley. And Jeff is just the quintessential Mississippi State Bulldog. And so those are the guys that we talked to, and it has been a blast over the last 20 weeks. And you can't leave out. Two guys. We had Todd Tillman, who won The Voice. <laughs> yes. And I'll tell you, the interview that I've heard as much as any is our friend Hardy. Yeah, Michael Hardy. Hardy up in Nashville wrote uh, Blake Shelton's God's Country, talked about how he really heard that phrase for the first time coming to start while well, passing the winston Octibahaw County line with his dad and said, all right, all right, boys, we're now in God's Country. Wrote that down on his farm in Bogachita, right outside of Nanooia. Charlie, it's been a lot of fun. It has. And, look, throughout the summer, we'll try to stay in touch with some guys, but looks like more or less until next year. Oh, absolutely. We'll have a couple of interviews. We'll pop up here and there. We're going to do a football show. We'll start that in August. Need to come up with a name. I'll tell you what, if you have an idea for a name, email us, leftfieldshow at gmail.com. We'll give it a little consideration. We'll try to figure out what we could possibly do for you. Probably not a whole lot. Not much at all. Return your email. Well, that would be a start for you because you never answer my emails. So that'll do it. You've been listening to Out of Left Field, presented by Farm Bureau.